Hello, everyone, and welcome to our 7investing live stream here in March. This is actually not 7investing now. This is a special team live stream that we're doing in addition to our typical live stream show, which will start on later this morning at 11 o'clock a.m. My name is Simon Erickson. I'm founder and CEO of 7investing, joined by my lead advisor team, Steve Simonton, Dan Klein, and Matt Cochran, and Max Chatsko. Gentlemen, good morning and happy Friday to you all. Good morning. Good, Hello. good morning, Simon. And of course, you say 11 o'clock, but for those of us in the Eastern time zone, which is kind of the default time zone, I don't want to be time zone snobby here. It's 12 o'clock. We're going to do the show at 12 o'clock today. For those in Eastern time, it will be at noon. For those in Mountain time, 10 a.m., where you do have quite a few time zones covered for this. But for this show specifically, uh, we're doing things a little different. Uh, every month at 7investing, we provide our favorite stock market opportunities. We pull our seven best ideas together. We huddle about them as a team. We, we chat about them on team calls. And then we publish them as recommendation reports to our subscribers. And you have access to those every month at 7investing.com slash subscribe. But for those who follow us and know how we do this, we typically look at things that are beyond just the reported earnings per share and revenue of the company. We like to look at the fundamental profitability the operating margins, the things that are driving this business over time. And these are mar these are metrics that we track within our reports and we report what it is we're looking at. And to help us with those, we've partnered with an organization called YCharts, which we've used since day one here at 7investing to help us dig into a lot of those metrics. And I can speak uh, for myself. I use it basically every other day when I'm looking at companies. And we've kind of carried the conversation over to Twitter a little bit where other people have asked us, hey, what does uh, this metric look like for this company? Or what is it that you're really following with, with X company or whatever else it might be? And we said, hey, how fun would it be for us to actually bring this to a live stream show where we talk live, like we are right now, about several of the companies that we like, but also several of the companies that you would like to ask us about. And so not only am I joined by my seven investing lead advisors on this call, but also some representatives here from YCharts as well to help us dig into some of those metrics, look at some companies and kind of see what we see when we're digging into companies. So I think this is gonna be a lot of fun. Um, to keep the conversation going, we've pre-populated a few ideas that we've collected from you on Twitter during this past week. So thank you, first of all, for everybody who submitted some ideas for us to look at. But if there is a company that you'd like us to dig into, um, like I said, we're joined by YCharts on this call this morning. We're going to actually spin up some graphics to look at. And so just put the name of the company that you'd like us to look at, as well as any operating metrics or any metrics that you'd be interested in, in the comments section on the right-hand side of this screen. Or if you're watching us on Twitter on our site, you can also add it uh, there as well. But we're, we're trying to do this on the fly. This is a little different. We want to kind of spin things up as quickly as possible. Uh, but we're going to run with it from there. And so thank you for tuning in. Thank you for YCharts for being here. Before we get to jumped into this, uh, I would like to put up a, a link for YCharts itself. Uh, if you are interested in joining YCharts and being a subscriber to them as we are, here's a special link that will get you 20% off of your annual membership for your very first year, just for mentioning that you're a fan of 7investing. And again, we approached them about this call. We, we really believe in, in YCharts genuinely. We're big fans of the service, and um, we, we think that they do some really great work there as well. So that said, you know, please post in the comments the companies that you'd like to talk about. We're going to start with a couple that we have on our list that we think are interesting. Steve Simonton, I might start with you on this one because right. one company a lot of people have been asking about is 2U. Let's talk about them first. Yeah, so uh, 2U, kind of this leader in online higher education. 
uh, and this uh, sort of digital edu education platform. So not only do they do undergraduate courses, graduate courses, uh, they have kind of tech boot camps, uh, online short courses through a couple acquisitions they made. And uh, they kind of changed some of their launch cadence when it came to um, sort of the way they were rolling out new programs and, and the speed at which they were doing so because their graduate and undergraduate degree programs are very cash flow intensive and uh, they they pay off after several years. But uh, these new tech boot camps and online short courses are not only kind of easier to roll out, but they they pay off in a shorter amount of time. So they sort of changed their launch cadence. And we saw um, we've seen some of the effects on their um, on their free cash flow and uh, and sort of delayed effects in their revenue growth. So uh, be interesting. We have a chart, right? Uh, that we're looking at for to you uh, that I wouldn't mind bringing up. Uh, when you look at this sort of um, big, you know, spike in the share price in uh, in kind of mid 2018, and it fell hard when they uh, when they kind of shifted the way they were going to be doing things. We had this sort of hiccup uh, change in launch cadence. You can see how their share price fell really hard. Uh, but their revenue has steadily marched higher, and uh, their, their free cash flow has been kind of kind of wacky uh, over the last year you know, on a quarterly basis, uh, from quarter to quarter. And part of this, uh, and, and notice this is very negative. Um, but if if you zoom out, and you know, if we look at sort of a um, on a trailing twelve month basis as well, I, I, I'd suggest for anyone who wants to bring up Y charts and do that, uh, look at their their free cash flow as a percentage of revenue, um, zooming out on a trailing twelve month basis, and you'll see that it is, uh, especially over the last uh, year and a half or so, just steadily marched higher. And uh, last quarter, um, you know, looking at unlevered free cash flow, actually, say two quarters ago, I think it was minus 44 million. Uh, then it narrowed to minus 9.9 million. And the last quarter is minus 3.7 million. We're sort of at this interesting inflection point for 2U to potentially uh, turn cash flow positive. And uh, that will really help, you know, when you're talking about a company that is uh, very capital intensive uh, when it comes to setting up these programs. And uh, that's kind of its, its interesting strength is that it, it takes most of the burden, uh, the cost of setting up these programs in exchange for the lion's share of uh, revenue and tuition revenue specifically that comes from them. Uh, so as they sort of reach this critical mass and turn cash flow positive, I think it's going to be really interesting to watch over the next several quarters. Yeah, fantastic. Could we put that chart back up one more time, Sam, of 2U? There it is right there. Like you mentioned, Steve, it's kind of been a pivot for this business, right? They've run new yeah. programs. You mentioned the boot camps, and those are capital intensive up front. But you see the revenue in the second graph there steadily climbing. Yeah. And you mentioned that they're even after their investment they're putting into those programs, we're starting to see kind of positive free cash flow. And that's what we want to see as investors, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, if we look specifically, actually, would you mind bringing that one up one more time? Uh, look at those last few quarters. Now, the the very last panel here is a cash flow per share on a quarterly basis. So it's kind of uh, kind of interesting. But if I could point right before the uh, the 2020 on the bottom right hand corner of that chart, uh, you see how much cash they were still burning. And uh, look at how look at what's happened over the last couple of quarters. And uh, and I think we're not it's not going to be so it's such a jagged chart. Um, when we when we look back, I think this is going to kind of steadily uh, march higher, and we're going to see something more like you know we're we're going to see the benefits of of uh, operating leverage uh, start to come into play here. Yeah, 
Perfect. Thanks very much, Steve. To you, of course, the company that's on a lot of people's mind, ticker on that T-W-O-U. The name of the company is even shorter than the ticker, just the number two and then the letter U, as it's kind of disrupting online education, bring a lot of those programs online. Uh, What we're talking about software, there's one that I wanted to mention as well. It's kind of a little bit related to what Steve was talking about. This is a cloud-based software provider for the life sciences industry, and it's called Viva Systems. Ticker on this one is V-E-E-V. Kind of a funny name, right? But uh, they're taking very seriously the idea of drug development and then commercialization of drugs that do make it through clinical trials and putting all of this into the cloud so it's much easier uh, and more efficient to make it through those trials and then also much easier for companies to track when they do have a successful drug launch, how it's selling out there with doctors and hospitals. And so I think one of the complaints with with Viva Systems, or maybe critiques is the right word for this, was that it simply just didn't have a large enough market, right? This was started by the person who um, created the Salesforce architecture. Peter Gastner was VP of product architecture at Salesforce. And he says, okay, I'm going to sign an agreement with Salesforce to just focus on life sciences. And people were saying, well, that's not a large enough addressable market when you've got other cloud providers that are looking much, much larger. You're you're isolating yourself into a very small, uh, less than $10 billion addressable market. And I think that a lot of the skepticism in the stock was that Viva just wasn't going to grow its revenue quickly enough to justify its expensive stock price valuation. And so let's pull up the chart for Viva Systems if we could. Here's a look for the last, oh, what is that? Uh, Seven or eight years of how Viva has performed not only in terms of of the stock's return, which has been phenomenal, that is the green line there, up 600%, 584%. But you look at that steadily increasing revenue, uh, which accompanies, even within this market of drug makers, it still continues to find a way to unlock more and more value for them, right? They want to have more and more products. They have more and more clinical trials coming out there. The pie is getting larger and larger at its existing customer base. And that continued to keep revenue growing. And then look at the gray line there. This is the one that I love about Viva Systems because when we're talking about SaaS companies, software as a service companies, we tend to think, oh, well, they're just spending all their money on sales and marketing, or they're spending all their money on research and development. There's no profit margin left after they pay those. I mean, we're used to seeing negative operating margins for a lot of these SaaS companies. But Viva Systems, even for the last seven or eight years, has held an operating margin. This is a gap operating margin here of greater than 20%. And even today is at 25.8% operating margin. That is fantastic. That is a fantastic sign for investors that not only is it able to price its products, that its customers value and they're willing to spend, but it's also being run very efficiently in paying for its necessary R&D and paying for its necessary sales and marketing to keep this business chugging along. Thanks very much, Sam, for the chart there. And so Viva Systems is kind of the the best one-two punch of they've got a niche that's very profitable for them. Um, They continue to grow at these large drug makers. One of the concerns, you know, five years ago has been, I think, discredited as they show continued revenue growth, but also a very, very profitable organization uh, that just continues to impress shareholders over time. Always expensive, but performs incredibly well. That's one of those companies that's that's selling at an all-time high a lot of the times and then continues to hit all-time highs going further. So again, if you have questions about companies specifically, please post them to the comments. We do have some other questions uh, that we might address on our regular 7 Investing Now show later on today. Uh, Thank you, Stock Investor. I love the new early morning segment. Yes, we do have caffeine and coffee from all parts of the country for this show. 
Uh, let's move on to another company that's also been hitting all-time highs quite a bit. Matt Cochran, I, I might go to you for this one. And that was something that was asked on our Twitter handle uh, at 7investing earlier this week, which was Facebook. Uh, what do we think about Facebook right now? And what metrics do we like to look at for this company? Yeah, well, uh, Sam, if you can, just go ahead and bring up the charts. Um, so first of all, like the first thing about Facebook is like the revenue is still growing nicely, right? Like some people are, are like say like that's because it's over monetizing, like uh, like oversaturating its its news feeds on Facebook and Instagram with ads. Um, but just just walk through that real quick. Like Mark Zuckerberg probably has access to more data than anyone else on the planet, right? Like in fact, there's that's usually one of the main criticisms uh, levied against Facebook that they just have too much data. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say he has data on how many ads people are willing to take on their Facebook and Instagram news feeds before leaving. And I want to bet that he knows how to use that data so that Facebook gets close to that line, but doesn't go over. Um, so, it, you know, like, are there any trust concerns? Certainly. Uh, what about Apple's new privacy updates to its iOS 14 operating system? There's these concerns, but one, like Zuck now says he's confident Facebook is going to navigate um, the Apple challenges and that it might even drive more merchants to sell directly from Facebook and Instagram platforms because sellers don't like those automatic 30% fees Apple takes off the top. And my point is just to date, remember, Zuckerberg has done a fine job of making Facebook grow its top line. That's never stopped growing. Uh, that revenue, it, it's it's at a nice steady pace. And, uh, pace. Um, and it's not a value stock. You know, it's really, it's still a growth stock. It's just disguised as a value stock. Um, and then the, the next two charts, I kind of want you to look at together, um, like Facebook's employee headcount and its operating margin. Um, so its operating margin has come down. And that's as Facebook's employee headcount has ballooned over time. Like it, it's it's more than doubled in the last five years. Um and, and a, few, a few things go into that. So after the 2016 election, uh, Facebook had to hire a lot of content moderators uh, because of the controversies it was involved in following Trump's victory in 2016. And not all of those content moderators work for Facebook, of course. Uh, in fact, a lot of them, the majority of them, are provided by third-party vendors. But it was still in 2017 when these hires started being made. And also in 2017, Facebook had about 1,000 engineers and developers working on virtual and augmented reality. And now it's Reality Labs division employs closer to 10,000 employees. Uh, just And that just shows Facebook has really ramped up its virtual and augmented reality efforts. Um, so, what, but, you know, Facebook's ballooning headcount has been a drag on its operating margin, but it's still really high. Like it's still 38%. Now that's down from its peak of like a 50%. But, you know, uh, and Simon, just like a few minutes ago, you're talking about Viva's like high operating margin and rightly so. But Facebook's operating margin, as it's come down, is still significantly higher than than Viva's is. Uh, you know, thirty eight percent operating margin is is fantastic. So even with this uh, ballooning employee headcount uh, for things like content moderation and virtual reality, um, uh, its operating margin is still really high, and it still has room to come down and still be very nice. So when you combine that with like a, a nice growing revenue, um, uh, which has again, grown by a very steady pace over the years. It's operating margin, which is still significantly above 30%. Uh, you know, even as it hires more people, like it's just, it's still investing for its future. 
I guess is what I want to say. It, it invests in content moderation to help it with new legislation that might come down the pike or any trust concerns uh, or a lot of the criticisms levied against Facebook and invest like in a lot in engineers and developing for new platforms, which could be like the wave of the future. You know, it wants to Zuckerberg has said this many times. Uh, he wants to own the next big um hardware that people use and he thinks that could be virtual reality glasses or augmented reality glasses he wants to own that platform um and you know so it's investing for its future while growing its revenue and while maintaining a very high operating margin you combine that with kind of like a the stock price has appreciated but it's gone sideways too a lot um over the last five years uh you know so Basically, you're you're getting Facebook at a at a at a really decent valuation for a stock that's still growing its top line and still investing in its future. Yeah, fantastic, Matt. I want to open up the conversation to ask if anyone has used the Oculus Quest uh, or any of Facebook. Okay, Dan, I saw Dan has. If anyone wants to add into the comments, if you've used the virtual reality headsets that Facebook had, they're they're pretty game changer, right, Dan? I mean, you do enjoy it, or maybe you used it a couple of years ago when they were still getting the kinks working. No, no, it's not a game changer. Uh, <laughs> so here, here's the problem. They weigh too much. Now, I own the- which, Now, which model are we referring to? I, I have one model old. So when you get to the latest model, it's a little lighter, but this is only going to work when it's Tony Stark sunglasses. This is not going to work as a headset because right now you put it on, and I've, I've played with the new one as well. If you, you put it on, it's fun. If you want to play the Star Wars game, it's very immersive. Uh, you have to be really careful in your house that you don't walk around and kill yourself while it's on. It's a great way to watch like five minutes of a basketball game. It's a really cool perspective. There's a lot of gimmicky content, but right now it's like, it's like going on a ride at a theme park. It's something you do and it's a very isolated experience. You wouldn't necessarily use it every day. It just has to get refined. You can see all the potential. You could see where you put a, a, you know, your glasses on and you're in a virtual boardroom and then you're on a virtual roller coaster or whatever it is, but it's not going to work with these, these bulky headsets. Even the slimmed down versions, it still feels like you know too far in an experience. So I do believe in it. I just think we're maybe two generations, maybe three generations away when it comes to execution. Yeah, and to, to to that point, you know, Facebook already signed a deal with Ray Ban sunglasses to like design glasses for, uh, you know, like in the future when it can just be a pair of glasses. Like Facebook knows where to go with this, you know, and that's why they're investing so much in it. Like I said, their their headcount, their engineers and developers working in their reality labs division has gone up ten x in the last th four years. So I mean, they are investing heavily in this. This is where. Uh, they're they're betting like uh, you know a large part of the company's future on. Yeah, Dan, Dan, you gotta have you gotta have oh. that personal trainer uh, work on neck muscles and traps. Then you can use the Oculus every day. All right. <laughs> Here's the thing: I, I see the potential for it actually being a great travel device. Like you're on a plane, and instead of having to watch on your phone or your your little laptop screen, you can have this immersive Netflix or television or whatever it is experience. So I do see how it gets there, but the price has to come down. Because it's not a needed device. You need a phone. So you can justify $300 to $1,200 for your phone. It's hard to justify three dollars to $500 for a headset so you can do virtual hang gliding or whatever it might be. Matt, does it concern you that Facebook's only self-created success, and I know they didn't technically create Oculus, they bought it, but their only self-created success is Facebook? Like They've generally failed in, in every non-acquisition they've tried. Um. It doesn't. It doesn't. When you buy Instagram for $1 billion, like when people were criticizing it for overspending for Instagram, 
Like, no, that doesn't concern me. Like, uh, you know, like it, people say that same thing about a, a lot of times about uh, Alphabet too. Like it's only success is the search engine. Like, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't really care where a company's success comes from, if it's organic or or bot. Uh, I think they're investing heavily. I, I I think a lot of its hardware is actually really good. Um, now it hasn't been a commercial success, and rightly so. Facebook has faced a lot of criticism over trust concerns and privacy concerns. Um, you know, I don't blame consumers at all for uh, mistrusting Facebook, but I think its hardware platforms are really good. Um, I think they're the leader in virtual reality right now. And uh, that that might continue uh, because they're investing so much in it. So, I mean, you know, look, when uh, I, I would also say Facebook Messenger has been a success. I mean, uh, so I don't know. Uh, like to me, it, it doesn't concern me too much. Like if you can buy Instagram for one billion dollars pre-revenue when people were just like lambasting that decision for years about how much Facebook overpaid for Instagram or then like they overpaid for WhatsApp because they spent 20 billion on it or 22 billion, whatever it was. Um, you know, like, no, I think Zuckerberg has a clear vision of the future. Like, look, there's concerns here, of course, like there's a lot of, cons again, rightly so consumer concerns over privacy and things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, I think uh, like Facebook is going to do still do very well from here. Yep. I'm a bull on this one as well, Matt. And you've convinced me, you know, the data privacy concerns of the year are not as big of a concern as I originally thought. I just wanted to chime in that Facebook's uh, lead developer on the virtual reality and the, and the hardware stuff that you're talking about says that the number of developer titles that are available through uh, through what is it? Horizon is the, uh, the Facebook where you have developers, but you can use the Oculus for those games. The number of titles has doubled in six months. So they're definitely the leader in that. I, I'm on the bullish side of the coin for that. Yeah, it's, and it's going to continue to exponentially yeah. grow. So Let's like, see. as you see that, as they hire more developers, as the, um, as the user base grows, it's going to attract more like third party, like developers too, and, and apps and, and things like that. And so as that grows, like, I mean, I, I really, you know, it's going to have that flywheel effect, you know, as it attracts more developers, you know, it attracts more users. And then as more users come, uh, more developer, more developers will be attracted to that platform. So, I mean, I just, you know, I, I'm not too concerned, Dan. Uh, I, I think they're going to be okay. Perfect. Let's keep rolling. Let's keep going. Keep the questions coming in. Keep the companies that you want to talk about coming in. We do see Todd, the first question for NVIDIA. Uh, we're going to go actually with, with Max first for all Nylum. And we're going to talk about that one first. And then we'll talk about NVIDIA. And then we'll come to Dan with Dollar General. And then after that, if we have other questions too, keep those coming in. We'll look at some other companies. Max Chatsko, the floor is yours. Yeah, so I don't bring the chart up yet, Sam, but uh, this is more to kind of explain um, something that, you know, is inherent to drug developers, right? So when we talk about drug developers and, and how do you value these companies, they don't really have these traditional fundamentals, right? They don't have revenue oftentimes. Most of the time, they don't have recurring revenue. Uh, they don't have earnings. They don't have cash flows. So when we're valuing them, it kind of looks like black magic, right? We put all these things into a black box and then we spit out some multi-billion dollar valuation, um, and that's true sometimes, right? It kind of looks like that uh, for these pre-commercial drug developers. Uh, but the, a drug developer does have fundamentals. They're just a little bit different, right? Um, you have to look at the assets in a pipeline. Uh, does it have a platform, for instance? Like a platform technology is a little more insulated from failures. Uh, you can tune it and, and engineer around problems that you find um, earlier in its development. Um, so it's a little bit easier to recover from failures as well. And then there's you know ways to look at valuing assets in the pipeline. So uh, a phase two asset would be more valuable than a phase one asset. A phase three asset would be more valuable than a phase two asset. 
can also look at patient populations those drug candidates are intending to serve, um, you know, whether there's a lot of competition in that space or there's no competition at all, right? Look what happens when uh, any company seems to have any hint of success uh, with a drug candidate trying to go after Alzheimer's, right? Uh, that can add quite a lot of money to a company's valuation. Now for Alnylam, um, we can bring up the chart now. <clears throat> it recently transitioned to commercial stage operations. So it had its first drug approved after over a decade of work in 2018. And it was actually the first drug in its class to be approved. It ended last year, 2020, with four drugs on the market that should um, reach at least five, maybe this year or next. Um, so you can see here, though, revenue is climbing. And a lot of that is recurring revenue, finally. Anonym has drug revenue coming in. But you can also see what happened to operating income. Um, it deteriorated. So still the traditional fundamentals look like they're getting worse after the company's transitioned uh, to commercial stage operation, operations. Uh, so that might be kind of confusing, but look, it's very expensive. You have to build out for the first time some of this commercial infrastructure, right? You have to have a sales team. You have to go and talk to doctors. You have to build consortiums with um, different stakeholders in the market, including you know uh, insurance companies. Sometimes you have to manufacture these things on multiple continents. Um, so it does take a little bit more time for these operating metrics, these traditional fundamentals to kind of catch up even after a company, a drug developer has transitioned to commercial stage operations. But the important thing to keep in mind uh, is that, you know, this company's now been de-risked, right? It has four drugs on the market. We can know that they're going to continue to increase revenue over time. Uh, so that is what supports, you know, the increase in the share price for Anandam Pharmaceuticals. And in fact, it has a pretty ambitious five-year plan. Uh, it expects to grow revenue. I'm not sure if this is from 2020 to 2025. It wasn't very clear, but at a compound annual growth rate of 40% through 2025. So from $500 million last year, uh, that's pretty impressive. So it's trying to be by 2025, a top five biopharmaceutical company uh, by market valuation. So <clears throat> all right, um, we can uh, take the, uh, the chart down, but that's just to illustrate one of those weird points of, you know, we, we, we put this, um, you know, getting a drug on the market is like the, the final, it's like the bookend, right? And then it kind of still takes another couple of years um, for those traditional fundamentals to catch up. But um, Alnylam is confident it can reach profitable operations uh, within the next few years here. Yeah. It, so even though it's reached the holy grail, it has commercialized <laughs> products as a biopharmaceutical company, you still got to spend money to make money, even when you, when you kind of get to the finish line. And that's not too concerning for us as investors. Right. The important thing is that it's been de-risked. It has this recurring revenue stream now for many years. Um, so that's the right way to judge this company right now even though if you looked at the traditional fundamentals you might be like what is going on this is getting worse like it's it's all about the investments uh in the future perfect yeah thanks very much max uh we're gonna go to one that was just provided in the comments section uh and and by the way we're going to take rocket companies too there was another question about the metrics uh, that are important to look at for rocket companies that's the parent company of rocket mortgage uh, let's look at the revenue for that one if we can start putting together a chart now and we'll get to that in a little bit here we will take rocket companies, but let's go to Todd's. Todd wants to know about NVIDIA. Could you explore uh, the, you know, what's going on with NVIDIA? Steve, maybe could you kind of spot us up with what's going on with NVIDIA? Because I know you've covered this company for probably almost a decade now. Right. Um, NVIDIA has this, this sort of unique position uh, as a company that, um, that 
has been able to to capitalize on massive demand for its its graphics chips, um, graphics processing units. Right, you look at GPUs, but it's not just video games anymore. So, uh, you know, gaming is obviously a huge part of their business. But uh, when we look at um, you know the uses for big data and uh, and data centers and artificial intelligence and uh, and you know automation, robotics. I mean, you name it. Um, they're, they're fantastic. The, the, uh, amount of throughput parallel processing capabilities with NVIDIA's chips is just, well, unparalleled pun intended, right? <laughs> uh, so it's, it's <laughs> bad. The, uh, and, well, but NVIDIA is one of those companies. <laughs> uh, NVIDIA is one of those companies that over the last, um, you know, five, six, seven years or so has sort of gone meteoric when you look at its share price with good reason. Um, what chart do we have available uh, for NVIDIA? Uh, we can look back um, and, you know, we're looking back, okay, toward 2012. And, uh, you know, if you could actually, if you could hover over this chart in, in Y charts and see what you have, um I, I'd almost love to get like a, a trailing 12 month and then actually see on a normalized like percentage basis, how much they've climbed, because, you know, we're talking about a company that's 20, 30, you know, 40 bagger for people who've held, held on for a decade or so. And, and uh, so it's been a really fun stock to own in that sense. I was just chiming yeah. in to say, and, uh, and, and a lot of it's doubled quickly, right? Yeah. And, uh, and they're sustaining this growth even from this massive kind of floor that they put in. So uh, it, it's really interesting to watch NVIDIA uh, when it comes to its ability uh, to, you know, to sustain growth, even from uh, massive levels. And uh, it's it's just one of those businesses that, you know, 10 years ago you looked at and you said, how is this, you know, an $8 billion business? This is bonkers. And now, you know, sure enough, we're talking about a uh, uh, business with a market capitalization of over 300 billion. And, uh, and I think it's, it's got room to, to climb from here. It's a stock that I've owned for, uh, well over uh, a decade and, and I continue to own, uh, and it's one of those that, uh, that I think a lot of people say, um, oh goodness, you know, how should, how could I possibly buy NVIDIA? It's run so hard. Uh, but I think people said the same thing about companies like Microsoft and Amazon and, uh, you know, which you could arguably say are, are buys themselves now today. And, uh, you know, do, do you think NVIDIA is going to be larger than and, you know, a $300 billion business, especially with its massive profitability, enviable margins? Um, it's a really, really uh, compelling business that benefits from operating leverage and just industry tailwinds, uh, very broad reaching uh industry tailwinds for for its products so i i agree with everything you said steve it seems like every week for the last 10 years we've heard nvidia called overvalued right this is an overvalue it's just a chip maker it's just making gpu chips but i think that's missing the bigger picture of it's becoming very embedded uh with some very demanding customers and it's hard to catch i mean it's technical yeah. performance of of those gpus in the data center uh, is performing at peak power efficiency. And it's not so easy yeah. for the most embedded chip makers. Um, even at the end of the day, they're selling semiconductors, but they're getting quite a significant operating margin for that, even alongside yeah. the revenue, as you mentioned, that's increasing. Uh, thanks very much, Steve. Uh, Dan, I'm going to hand it to you next. Let's go with uh, one that was that was asked about earlier this week, which was Dollar General. 
ticker on that is DG. And then if you and Matt would like to, after you're done chatting about Dollar General, just roll into Rocket Companies, which is RKT, which was in the comments too. So I'll hand the floor to you, Dan. Yeah. So sometimes with charts and with data, we can get absolutely in the weeds. What's the average revenue per user? Uh, how much money are they making in this market segment? But Dollar General is a really simple business, and you really just need to look at simple metrics. This is a company that knows where to put its stores. Its average store gets to profitability in about a year, and revenue at its stores all are about the same. They top out because they sell household goods and food and basic items. They're, they're not all of a sudden going to sell you a couch. You know, They're going to sell you some uh, slightly old Starbucks canned espresso. They're going to sell you a half roll of toilet paper like like Dollar General is, they're going to sell you some knockoff Dr. Pepper, you know, Captain Topper or whatever it's called. Um, so this is a store where, and let's bring up the chart here. What do you look at? Well, you look at, is the revenue growing? Because this is a growth story company. This is not a company. And you're going to see reported when Dollar General reports, well, you know, what was the average comp sale increase per store? And their comp sales don't matter. They might go up a little bit. If there's something seasonal, maybe it's extra cold in parts of the country and they sell a, a bunch more blankets, which are, you know, drive their comp sales higher. But the reality is comp sales don't matter. It's overall revenue as driven by adding new stores. So there is no Y chart figure for new stores, but you can see as that revenue line climbs and it's not always 100% steady because there is a ramp up period. So if it's a quarter, they've launched a bunch of stores, you know, you might not see it go up quickly, but this is one where the story is just really simple. I don't remember how many stores they have, but they have many, many years of adding a thousand more stores. They're also trying out another concept. So this is a case where you don't need to get too in the weeds. You need to look at their report and say, okay, how many stores are they going to open this year? Are they on pace to do that? And are the stores continuing to perform? You can take the chart down if you like. Uh, Simon, I'm a big fan of when it's just really, really simple. You know, there's no marketing cost here. Or there's very little marketing cost here. There's very little to take out. It's, it's really, they know their profit margin. Um, you know, certainly you can listen to an earnings call and you might hear like, yep, uh, fuel prices going up has raised our cost by half a percent. But these are all gonna be relatively small numbers. You're not gonna see a massive spike in the cost of you know, frozen dinners or, or you know, cheap iPhone chargers or whatever it is. It's a really, really simple business that's executed really, really well. Which brings us to Rocket Mortgage. I'm gonna let Matt do most of the talking here, but I will say Rocket Mortgage is the opposite. It's one that it's great to look at revenue, but you really need to dig into the, the reports and look at marketing cost. It is very expensive to acquire mortgage customers. And Matt, I don't know about you, but a mortgage is not something I get every six months. It's usually a once, a, for me, it's been about once every three years, but in recent, in, it's, you know, recent, it's been once a decade. For most people, it's twice a lifetime. So there's absolutely things you have to check for Rocket Mortgage that you can't really see on a chart. Matt, take the helm. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think we have a revenue chart for Rocket Mortgage uh, ready to go. But like just real quickly, uh, you know, like as Dan said, or I think most people know because they advertise so much, um, you know, it basically is a like mortgage origination uh, company and it like fires out a lot of marketing and people go to Rocket and Rocket finds them like a, you know, a really good rate for their mortgage or refinance. Now, and to their thing, they do have like other uh, options for like uh, auto auto loan services or other financial services, but it's really, it's the nation's largest mortgage lender. So, the, and that's really where it gets most of its revenue from now. So just a real 
few quick stats, like in, in, in 2020, uh, if it, it, it had $320 billion of mortgage originations, um, like you can see its revenue has grown very uh, well over the last year. In the fourth quarter, its revenue was up like over 144% year over year. So it's great revenue growth. Um, you know, it does have a 91% net client retention rate, but as Dan said, so like how many times do you find a mortgage? So in this environment, like some of the main questions surrounding rocket mortgage, like in this environment, interest rates have just gone low, low and lower, you know? Um, so that's like, and house prices have gone up. So that's like the perfect environment for rocket companies, you know, and, and how, how, how much can you depend on, uh, interest rates to stay low? Well, housing prices keep going up. These are factors well outside of rocket, uh, rockets control. And so for a, a large part of its business, it's really tied to like factors outside of its control. So I don't know if it really controls its own destiny as a company. And that's kind of like, for me as an investor, that's kind of scary. So even though it's growing revenue, great. Um, it's been in a kind of like this perfect environment for the com company. And, uh, you know, it's hard to say like how, how long that keeps up, you know, as far as this economic moat, uh, like Dan pointed out, like it basically has to keep outspending its competition and there's a lot of competition. Uh, you have loan Depot, which I think it's going public or it's already gone public, uh, recently. Um, you know, there's other like mortgage origination companies out there. Like, so it, you know, it has to keep spending a lot of money on marketing. Um, you know, that, that never really ends. And, um, and it's been a perfect environment for it. Like house prices are up, interest rates are low. How long do those things stay, uh, stay true? It's hard to know. Matt, let me, let me jump in a little bit here. Like, yeah. first of all, for those of you who are watching, who have asked a question, if we're ignoring your question, there's probably a reason for it. It might be a company we're not allowed to talk about for various re for various reasons. Maybe it's a future pick. Maybe it's a past pick. It, it, you know, there's all sorts of reasons we can't talk about certain things. Maybe we just bought, who knows what it is. But that being said, when you look at Rocket, you also have to realize you're only looking at part of the story right now. They are largely a mortgage company. Their ability to leverage the fact that they're they're creating mortgages and start selling things like home inspections, they, they do this to some extent with referrals. But there are a lot of other areas that when you're getting a mortgage where you need things, you need moving, you need insurance, you need... So Rocket Mortgage could eventually say, okay, we have this connection how do we morph that connection into a 30-year relationship beyond the mortgage? You know, that again, insurance would be a really logical area, but even like house cleaning or moving help or whatever it would be, they have to find a way to take all this money they're spending to acquire a customer and then have that customer stick around longer. That's not something you're gonna see play out in six months or even a year. That's gonna be the, the five to 10 year story on Rocket Mortgage. Simon. These are all great points. I think that, you know, to recap the last three companies that we've looked at, we, we looked at NVIDIA, we looked at Rocket Mortgage, Rocket Companies, and we looked at Dollar General. And kind of, you can kind of see, uh, you've got kind of the slow and steady performer that's all about operational efficiency, which is Dollar General that Dan talked about. You've got the perfect environment created, as Matt mentioned, for Rocket Mortgage. And then you've kind of got somewhere between the two of those extremes, right, which is NVIDIA, who has definitely benefited from an environment that's uh, conducive for cloud computing in the data center, but has also executed incredibly well. And kind of this is how we size up these types of companies as a team. And so a reminder uh, for anyone watching, seveninvesting.com slash subscribe is how you can get access to our reports every single month. There's the link right there. Thank you very much, Sam. We do provide reports. We provide our seven best ideas in the stock market every single month. 
We put them into reports and we track operating metrics. And we're talking on today's call about those operating metrics for the companies that you might be interested in. So a huge thank you, first and all, first of all, to Rushi Shah and Pooja Rao Pennington from Y Charts, who are behind the scenes, kind of providing all of these charts in real time. Uh, fantastic job as we're throwing companies at you and you're keeping up incredibly well. Uh, Sam Bailey is also our director of marketing here at Seven Investing. Uh, Sam, can I put you on the spot a little bit too? As uh, the rest of the, the people on this call that are appearing are, are lead advisors with Seven Investing. You do not have a, a background directly in investing, but how do you like our reports? I mean, do you enjoy learning more about how to invest in companies from reading our recommendations each month? I do. And when I accepted this job, I thought that was going to be the worst part of my job <laughs> is having to read all of these reports and figure out what's going on. But I actually really enjoyed them. I like, I feel like they're easily digestible. You know, you have the key takeaways at the top. If you want to read that, you can figure things out and move on, or you can continue to read. I really like that part of our reports. I think there's something for everyone, no matter you know how much in the weeds you want to get with them. Yeah, thanks very much, Sam. I wanted to point that out, that it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We don't want to talk a language that sounds completely foreign. We want all of our reports to be understandable. We want to empower you to learn more about how to actively invest in the stock market. And so I think we've got about 10 minutes left. Uh, you know, if you do have other companies you'd like us to look at, please continue to post those to the comments. There's a couple more that I'd like to get to here on the team. Uh, just one that I'd like to briefly touch on is CVS. Dan, it sounded like you had a comment that you wanted to jump in with. Real I just I just want to jump in real quickly and remind everybody at noon, we are, ho we are, are it's, nor it's noon on Friday. Eastern seven. time noon, yes, yes. <laughs> Eastern time, seven investing now. And we're going to talk about five stocks for a volatile stock market, right? Right now, we see the stock market swing. Like yesterday, I was on a plane and my internet was in and out, and I'd see all red and then all green and then a mix. And like the market is more volatile than usual. We're going to talk about five companies that make sense for a volatile market. Then we're also going to talk about investing advice that might be counterintuitive, something that doesn't sound right on the surface, but actually is good investing advice. So we would love to see you live at noon Eastern time, seven investing now. Great. Yeah. Thanks very much, Dan. And uh, it looks like we did have one other question about Critio, which we'll bring up in a, in a minute here too. I would like to point out just one thing that sometimes companies change over time and it changes the metrics that you're looking at. I, I think that Max had a great example with Anilam earlier that you know once they go commercial, it changed the business, they had to put more money into it. Uh, you you kind of need to stay vigilant on how businesses are, are evolving themselves over time. And the example I want to give for this one is CVS Health. This is another one that was submitted to us via Twitter earlier this week. If we could put up the chart for CVS, if we have it available. Oh, perfect. Thanks very much. There's a couple of things going on here that I want to take a look at. Uh, first of all, if you look at kind of the chart, we've seen over about a, what is that, eight-year period. Uh, the stock price has more than doubled in price. We're up 118%. Uh, but the business itself has also evolved significantly for CVS, even for decades, even before this chart went into place. A lot of people might think of CVS as a retail pharmacy, right? You go in to pick up your prescription pills and you leave buying, you know, gummy worms and, and uh, Captain Topper on the way out, like Dan mentioned, or Dr. Pepper if it's, if it's not the knockoff. And CVS has always been a retail company in our minds, but it's kind of expanded more and more to expand its position in the healthcare value chain. We've seen CVS become a PBM, a pharmacy benefit manager that holds the data of what kind of drugs are included within your insurance plan. Where can you where can you get those, and who you know who should be providing those those different prescriptions for you? And we've seen it expand also even become an insurer itself, right? With Aetna a couple of years ago, three years ago, it goes out and acquires an insurer itself, so it can be the payer 
for those prescriptions that are provided over time. And a lot of people are saying, well, wait a minute, CVS, your operating margins are falling. Look at the blue line from 2012. You know, we're looking at an operating margin that has declined over time. In fact, if we go back even further in time, we saw this in a double digit operating margin that today is standing at only maybe 5% operating margins. And we might initially look at that and say, oh my gosh, CVS is over diversified <laughs> business. It's losing its profitability. This might initially be thought of as a poor choice for investors. But when you couple that with the black line here, which shows the cash from operations as it's expanded its footprint within the healthcare value chain there, it continues to reward shareholders through growing and expanding operating cash flow. Thanks very much for the chart, Sam. So I guess my point that I'd like to make with CVS there is businesses is the will evolve over time. We're not always looking in one-to-one -one comparisons, even over year over year. You need to take a look at the acquisitions they're making. You look at the evolution of these businesses. And a lot of times, just looking at an operating margin or just a revenue in isolation is not telling you the entire story. Uh, when, you, when you look at a lot of things kind of correlated together, that's really where you get the bang for your buck as an investor. And I think CVS is a great example of that. Simon, let me jump in. It's also important to note that CVS made some intentional choices to change its business. There's a dip, and I forget the year, uh, but they got rid of four or five years ago, maybe a little longer. They got rid of cigarettes. <laughs> and that yes. was roughly giving up, I forget the number, but $2 billion worth of business. And basically, they said, we can't market ourselves as CVS Health if the first thing you walk in in is see cigarettes. Now, that's not a perfect decision because they sell alcohol at my CVS. They, they still sell lots of snacks, but they have tried to move to a healthier model uh, where they, they do also have healthy snacks, they have a larger selection of beverages. So sometimes a company can say, you know what? This area of business, we're gonna give it up because it's not in line with what we're doing. And we know we're gonna take a short-term hit. I'd argue in the long-term that whatever they replace cigarettes with, and it's largely healthcare items and minute clinics and things like that, has done the job and replaced that revenue. But when you see some of those big dips there, it's because they made a measured decision to walk away from, you know, it was like six, 7% of their revenue that also sold other things. You come in to buy a pack of smokes and you buy some gum or you buy you know, a pack of chips or a, a Coke or whatever it is. So it's not always linear for companies. Like the, things changed for CVS and not just the Aetna acquisition, but also how they position themselves as a business. The Minute Clinic is an important one to note because there is a much, the entire healthcare market is becoming more consumer facing. It's not just going to the doctor, the doctor holds all of your data anymore. It's just kind of expanding to be closer and closer to consumers. We talk a lot about Teladoc as a company that's doing telehealth appointments, but there is definitely a role for like a CBS and do a lot of that diagnostic work um, as close to the community as possible. Okay, Matt, so let's let's shift gears. We've got a couple more minutes here. I do wanna talk about Square and kind of give a, a recap and thank you for all the comments that are coming in. We can't take all of those. As I mentioned, we do have, um, we, we don't reveal our current recommendations, so that's part of it. Part of it we like to talk about in our live stream show, which will be coming up here at, at noon Eastern time. But Matt, let me hand it to you. Let's talk about what's going on with Square these days. Yeah, absolutely. Let's pull up the charts we have we have for Square. Um, the specific question we got was for, um, I think there's another one too with the, yes, that's it. Um, so I, like some of the questions we got was about Bitcoin. Like how does the Bitcoin revenue, like, uh, uh, like is that misleading investors because Square doesn't make too much profit from its Bitcoin revenue. So the reason why I wanted to bring this up is like uh, it's gross profit. It hasn't grown as fast as revenue, but it's still grown very nicely. And so just addressing like the Bitcoin revenue, like, and is that, um, is that responsible 
for like Square's revenue growth. Square started selling or allowed the selling, the buying and selling of Bitcoin on its plat on its Cash App platform in January 2018. Um, it didn't start charging for that though until um, in late 2019 when it's charged uh, like a one and a half percent or or two percent fee for all the buying and selling of Bitcoin on its platform. But just here's a quick timeline. Of, of Cash App. Um, well, first it was launched in October 2013 before Square even went public. In March 2015, just as Square was going public, it, it, it launched Square Cash for Business. Uh, if we can just leave that chart up, that'd be great. Uh, it, Square Cash for Business, which allowed like Cash App users to buy and sell merchandise and goods from uh, Square sellers. And then in May 2017, it launched a cash card. In January 2018, like I already said, it allowed the buying and selling of Bitcoin and then started charging for that in late 2019. In March 2018, it started allowing direct deposit and cash app. In May 2018, it launched, it launched cash app boost, which was its reward program for its debit card. In January 2019, it launched a business debit card. October 2019, it launched a buying and selling of stocks on cash app. My point is, it's not any one of these things that's responsible for uh, Cash App's growth. It's just the continued launching of innovative features and um, and services on Cash App that is responsible for its growth. Um, you know, none of these innovations in and of themselves are game changers. Uh, you know, it's just a steady stream of launches. They add up and they that increases engagement over time. And that makes the services much stickier, uh, much more stickier for its users. You know, just on its seller side too. Um, you know, in March last year, in the first month when the COVID-19 pandemic really hit, it launched a whole like slew of innovations for its seller side. You know, uh, in March 2020, it launched curbside pickup and contact contactless deliveries for its restaurant clients, um, which was all managed through its existing point of sale system. It created an online directory for sellers where consumers could purchase gift cards. It offered customizable email marketing campaigns that its sellers could use to let existing companies know, uh, existing customers know like, hey, we're open for pickup or we're doing delivery now. And the, the businesses didn't have to gather those emails themselves. Square had already been doing that. It had all the phone numbers or emails of people who had already used, uh, um, like, uh, bought at the point of sale for that for that business. You know, it refunded software fees for businesses uh, during the pandemic. It tightened eligibility requirements to obtain Square Capital loans. That was all in March of last year. And like, again, my point is really that just Square continues to innovate. It's this pace of innovation uh, that's important here, and not any one feature. So yes, like, the, has its revenue uh, been like, does it look like a, maybe a little faster than we should? We should look at it because of Bitcoin revenue. Yes, absolutely. But its gross profit continues to grow too. So it's not just Bitcoin revenue uh, driving this growth story. And uh, like in the last year, like its revenue and gross profit have grown while its sellers have been like extremely limited by quarantines and stay at home orders. So, you know, this is still a growth story. And it's also like I think an economic, uh, an economy reopening play because as these businesses open up, um, you know they'll be able to do a lot more sales at the point of sale. So I, I just think like uh, overall, this is still a growth play, and it is not just uh, because of Bitcoin revenue. Yeah, great points, Matt. Because that kind of makes the headlines a lot, right? We want to talk about Bitcoin, we want to talk about title, we want to talk about NFTs. Let's focus on the core of the business, which is performing incredibly well, as you just mentioned. Sure. And a lot of that's Jack Dorsey, too. Right? I mean, he talks about Bitcoin a lot. He's invested in like a small part of Square's balance sheet in, in Bitcoin. So, um, you know, a lot of that is tied to, to Dorsey. He's talked about NFTs, you know, um, 
but uh but uh you know they just bought title music and and there's a lot of talk about what they might do there with music and nfts but overall you know just just take a step back look at the big picture um you know has bitcoin revenue like accelerated its revenue and maybe almost mislead investors like maybe but its gross profit is still growing uh, by a lot. And so like if, if Square, my, my, my view has always been if Square can drive a customer acquisition through the buying and selling of Bitcoin, uh, you know, like um, th then more power to it. Right. Like so like uh, and that'll just drive engagement and that those users will use other services on Cash App and uh, that'll grow its gross profit, which it has done. Yeah. Great, great points, Matt. Um, come check out Matt's analysis on our site about Square. He's got some great analysis. He's also got some great puns and great jokes about the company, too. I always appreciate those as well, Matt. Uh, let's go with one more. We're wrapping up here. We've only got a couple more minutes before uh, the top of the hour here, but I did want to get to Critio. Uh, CRTO is the ticker on this, and that was a question coming in from Mark. Uh, mm -hmm. Steve, can I hand this one to you for Critio? Sure. Uh, Critio is a company that I've covered for many years, and uh, they've had quite the ride. Uh, particularly in, uh, I, I think it was 2019, uh, is, is when the stock fell really hard because you had a lot of big, um, I guess for background, Critio is an advertising retargeting specialist. So, uh, when we look at, uh, online ads, ad retargeting is, uh, the ability for a company to kind of see that, oh, you visited their site. You maybe added something to your shopping cart. You're looking at the website and, uh, you moved on. And you didn't buy anything. And uh, they might remember like, oh, hey, uh, that person was here before. Maybe we should remind them like, hey, finish your purchase, something like that. That was sort of the big thing that they did for, you know, like a decade leading up to like 2016. Uh, they were really known for ad retargeting uh, and kind of had a wrench thrown in uh, the way they do things when a lot of the big um, the big Internet giants announced uh, plans to sunset third party cookies, which is kind of how. Critio relied on tracking uh, people and that sort of um, threw the stock into a, a, a temporary tailspin while the company kind of re um, <laughs> retargeted its priorities. Right. It it, uh, it, it came back and said, uh, you know, we need to change how we do things and lessen our reliance on um third-party data tracking. And uh, that's kind of what they've done. Actually. I think uh, if we want to bring up a chart uh, and we have, um, Critio looking back, look at what their share price has done there in black, <laughs> got pummeled. Uh, okay. It was, it was, yeah, late. Uh, it was in 2018 and 2019 uh, as, as their business was uh, effectively disrupted by these plans and people really kind of feared the worst for what was happening. Um, but EBITDA is kind of, kind of tough to look at. Um, you know, it's kind of remained flat, but their, their revenue uh, has, is kind of flattened out as well. But uh Critio does something interesting because they like to rely primarily on something called revenue X tack, uh, revenue excluding traffic acquisition costs, which is, um, well, the, the better way to kind of gauge their progress. So revenue X tack is sort of on the cusp of returning back to growth. You notice that shares spiked, uh, I think it was a little more than 80% uh, last month. And that was, you know, quite the quite the surge because what we've seen is they've decided to expand um, their ability to handle more first party data and they have improved API integrations with a lot of their retailer clients and uh, they're expanding into kind of uh, 
video media and and data analytics measurement and and kind of this multi-product transition uh, that sort of not only lessens the reliance on their core retargeting business, but also um, it, it, it just diversifies their revenue streams. So uh, they found ways to to sort of um, well, uh, improve the business overall and lessen their reliance on the old way of doing things. And people are happy about that, rightfully so. Still hasn't rebounded to where it was. Uh, but I think it's a really interesting stock that people can keep on their watch lists. And uh, it's been around for a lot longer than you think. Um, so Critio, pretty interesting business and uh, and maybe on the cusp of, of a, a substantial return to growth. Thanks very much, Steve. Uh, we're, we're wrapping up the last couple of minutes here. I hope that everyone has enjoyed this call as much as I have. I think that the perfect way to end this is with Ted's question at the very bottom here. If we can put that one up here. Uh, Ted, thank you for this question. Great insight, but would like to hear more about value versus stock price. Some of these stocks have high PE ratios. That is the perfect question to describe kind of why we wanted to have this call with all of our subscribers. We think that behind the curtain of PE ratios and earnings per share and price targets and kind of all of this front facing things that we hear about in the financial media is much more important metrics that we think that we should be paying attention to as investors. And again, the metrics we've talked about on this call, we talked about EBITDA just a second ago, Steve, with uh, with Critio. We've talked about free cash flow. We've talked about operating profits. We talked about employee count. I mean, these are the things that we tend to look at as investors that are very important. And we've highlighted quite a few different types of companies, right? We've talked about NVIDIA. We talked about Critio. We talked about rocket companies. We talked about Viva Systems, 2U, Facebook, Dollar General, Alnylam, Square, and CVS. Just to round everything out, I think that this is incredibly valuable for investors. We hope that you enjoyed this call as well. Uh, my thanks to Rushi Shah and Pooja Rao Pennington for joining us from YCharts. Again, a, a partner of ours at Seven Investing that we've been a huge fan of. Thank you for all of the charts. If we could put that link up one more time, perhaps, this is will get you 20% off of an annual subscription to YCharts. We hope that if you sign up, you enjoy it as much as we have. We've used them since day one here with Seven Investing. And if you would like to take the, the leap with us and join Seven Investing today, we have a link for that as well. Uh, seveninvesting.com slash subscribe if you'd like to get started and see our very best ideas in the stock market. And so with that, we're going to wrap this call up. Again, a reminder that you can tune into our Seven Investing Now live stream that starts in one hour. That is at 12 noon Eastern time. That's where we talk about some of the volatile companies, especially in today's market where a lot of tech stocks and other overvalued stocks are selling off. Ours, is that for the right reasons or is that just market rotation giving long-term advantage, uh, long-term investors an opportunity in the stock market? So thank you to Dan, Matt, Max, and Steve, my fellow lead advisors here at 7investing. Tune into 7investing now at noon. And uh, thank you for attending this call. We hope you have a great Friday. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.